0: All right, so today we are talking about pragmatism, but before we can get to Peirce and William James, we have to take care of a good bit of house cleaning first and we have to talk about some other things. Um, so first off, we are very close to the end of the semester. This is the second to last lecture that I will be presenting online. Um, we are like two weeks out from the final exam at this point. And while I'm recording this again a week in advance, like we're going to talk about Nietzsche this week, um, I want to sort of like prepare you for what you need to expect in the coming weeks um, now that we're getting close to the end game. Because um, things are changing as we are getting closer to the exam, and not like even more than would have happened under coronavirus like this is just the natural end of year stuff that we really have to get out of the way um so let's talk timeline um i'm assuming you're going to listen to this around the week that the pragmatism quiz is scheduled so we're talking probably like uh april 27th through april 29th um again i'm recording this the week before um at this point you are probably panicking about the research paper good because it's due this week. Um, Friday, May 1st is the due date for the research paper. It is a major part of your grade. Make sure that you get it in in good time. Uh, Make sure that, you know, you do not miss the deadline. Um, But that said, if you do miss the deadline, or if you have late assignments, or, you know, if you've got outstanding stuff that you need to turn in, turn it in to me, get it to me as soon as you possibly can. Um, I will accept literally all writing assignments Um, that have been due at any time during the semester. So that includes the response papers, that includes the analysis paper, that includes the extra credit assignments. Um, It does not include the discussion boards or the Q&A session attendance. It does not include the reading quizzes. Um, Those things are locked because they're time sensitive. Got to do them when when they're available. Um, if you've missed them, then there will be opportunities to make them up. That's what the extra credits are for. But if you are still looking at a big fat zero in the analysis paper slot, or in one of the research paper, or on one of the response papers, or if you don't get the research paper to me on time, you can do so until the end of the semester, um, which we'll get to that deadline in a little bit. Um, so don't panic. Like you can still pull this off, even if you're struggling at this point. Make sure to show up for the Q&A session this week. Make sure to do the discussion boards otherwise. Uh, make sure to get the research paper in on time. Make sure you nail the final exam when it rolls around. Um, next week, we will be reading Wittgenstein's Philosophical Investigations, um, which is great. It's one of my favorite philosophical texts. It's one of the ones that I'm like most keen to study. This is like my specialty, philosophy of language. Um, so I'm eager to talk about it, and I'm eager to, to have that conversation with you next week. Um, However, this is also the week that we're going to be spending talking about the review for the final exam. Um, To give you a rough idea of what to expect from the final, uh, I include a couple of fill-in-the-blanks and, like, really easy objective information about, um, specifically, the timeline. Like, the four periods in philosophy, ancient, medieval, modern, and postmodern. I will expect you to match each of the works that we read in class, if we spent some significant time on it, uh, with the period in which it was composed. Um, So, you know, Plato in the ancient period, Aquinas in the medieval period, Descartes in the modern period, and, you know, Nietzsche in the postmodern period, for example. I'll also expect you to be able to identify the five branches of philosophy, metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, politics, and aesthetics, as well as tell me what each of those uh, branches specifically studies. Um, But you can find all of this on the review sheet, which is already online. It was there since the beginning of the semester not too much has changed since the last time I taught this course. Um, So you are welcome to look that up at any time. Um, additionally, use the review sheet, um, before next week's Q&A session, because I expect we'll probably end up spending a lot more time talking about the Q&A or about the review sheet than we will about Wittgenstein, which is kind of a bummer because Wittgenstein's awesome. Um, but nonetheless... I figure you'll have lots of questions, and that's good. Like, read over the review sheet, I realize that a lot of it is kind of cryptic and unhelpful, um, but basically the rule of thumb here is if you're looking at it and you don't know what you are looking at, you don't know what it refers to, then go back and research it. Um, After the the fill-in-the-blank section, there will be a brief multiple-choice section, um, like four or five questions, nothing too serious, but they are nasty hard, because those are the ones that have to do with logic. Um, like remember we talked about uh, ampliative versus deductive reasoning, we talked about the difference between like formal and formal fallacies, we talked about categorical reasoning and analogical reasoning and implicational reasoning, we talked about you know a priori versus a posteriori reasoning, all that stuff could show up in those multiple choice questions um, and they tend to be pretty mean. But they're also fairly like small as far as the exam goes. Um, The major portion of the exam is twofold. First are the short answers um, and the short essay in the objective portion. Um, There's like eight to ten short answer questions. They're all fairly substantial. By short answer, I'm looking for like one to two sentences, maybe more if necessary. But, But these are the big ideas that we cover over and over and over again in this class, like the problem of evil, or Descartes' argument for the existence of God, or Aquinas' arguments for the existence of God, or the simplicity of God, or like the life and death of Socrates. Um, Stuff that we talk about frequently enough in this class that it's not reserved to just one text. As a rule, the final exam is not interested in depth. It is interested in breadth. I wanted you to show me how much you know about the stuff in this class, even if it's only a fairly superficial or surface knowledge. Um, So I'm not going to ask you to, like, dig deep into a philosophical argument like I did with the research paper. That will take place in the essay portion, but we'll come back to that. Um, Mostly I'm looking for, do you know the basic principles that keep coming up in this class? The big ideas relative to each philosopher we've talked about. Um, I'm not going to be putting the quiz questions on the test, because they are meant to demonstrate your reading proficiency. They are meant to be a deep dive. That's not what I'm going for here. Um, After the short answers, there will be a short essay. Um, The short essay is meant to be like one to two paragraphs. It is also super open-ended. Like, it's one of the questions that we have dealt with, like, as an overarching theme of this class. Like, Um, Do you believe in the existence of God? Do we have free will? Um, Do we, you know, what is our responsibility with our knowledge? Um, What is, you know, the foundation of truth or knowledge? Um, These things we've been talking about the whole class. Every single one of our philosophers has weighed in on it. Um, You don't get to know what the short essay is beforehand. Um, You just have to kind of figure you'll be asked to, philosophical question and will be expected to answer as far as your personal convictions are concerned as informed by the thinkers we've read in this class. Um, but that's all just half of the exam. The other half is the essay portion. In um, the essay portion you can basically approach just as though it was a writing assignment. Um, it's not timed. You can turn it in as like a Word document or a PDF or whatever you want. Um, it's not a huge deal. Um, the idea here is I'm looking for about three to five paragraphs. So you know, like roughly an SAT essay in length. That's kind of the basis that I'm working on here. Um, but I'm also going to give you the questions beforehand. Like we'll talk about them in the q and A session. Um, if I haven't already, then you'll have the actual questions to work with. Um, You will have time to prepare, is what I'm saying. This is where I actually want you to dig deep into the text. Each of the questions is going to compare and contrast some of the philosophers that we've talked about on a specific angle. so, like, I might ask about skepticism regarding Hume and Descartes, maybe. Or perhaps I'll, you know, talk about, like, Nietzsche's attitude towards God versus Aquinas'. Um, that's the sort of thing that you will find on the essay questions. And I expect, you know, not that you're going to, like, do a whole bunch of research. Instead, you only have to talk about the, the guys we've read in class. But I do expect you to actually like reread those texts, pick out some specific details, maybe quote them when appropriate. Um, Give me a solid idea of what you understand from the text. Show me that you can read this philosophically. Um, Show me that you can can actually like take these thinkers apart, compare and contrast their ideas, and make your own conclusions. Um, That's what I'm looking for in the essay, and that's the deepest that you will be. required to go, and again, you'll know the questions beforehand so you can study beforehand. The thinking here is that it is a waste of your time to literally reread everything that we read in class. Like, you don't have that kind of time. I don't recommend you use your time that way. I'm sure you can find better things to do. Um, Instead, reread the passages that are important to the stuff that you don't remember that's on the review sheet, and reread those passages, those books, um, the things that we read in class that specifically pertain to what you want to talk about in the final exam essay. Um, That's my suggestion as far as how to prepare for the final exam. Um, Again, don't reread everything. Now the exam itself is going to be due on the 11th, that is the Monday after next week from your perspective. Um, so on May 11th, the final exam will be due. You will be required to have it turned in by the end of the day. Um, that includes both the objective portion of the exam and the essay portion of the exam. The take-home exam is what it's called in the canvas, because originally you were going to be required to take that home while the objective would have been done in class. But here we are in coronavirus land, so really, who knows? Um, so on the 11th, the exam is due. I will not accept it after eleven fifty-nine p.m. on the day of the exam on the 11th unless like you're turning it in like two minutes late or something if you've already started it. Importantly though you will be able to take it at any time um, between the 4th and the 11th. Uh, like, I don't recommend taking it especially early because the QA session will do a lot of, rev- of review and you can all obviously ask me questions, um, spend some time researching. But I would recommend over the weekend, Saturday or Sunday, the 9th of the 10th, be sure to take the objective exam and get that essay polished up. Um, note, like, I don't expect the essay to be a perfectly, you know, a perfectly written, written assignment. I'm not going to be looking for punctuation and grammar on this one as deeply as I did on the research paper or the analysis paper. I am mostly going to treat this as though it were an in-class essay. So, like, if there are mistakes, if you don't have everything spelled correctly, don't worry about it. I'm not looking for style nearly as much. Um, Instead, I'm looking for content. I want to sort of see what you can do under pressure um, in the way that an exam ought to. Um... So, that said, get it done on the 9th and the 10th, make sure, like, don't leave anything for the 11th if you can afford it. Um, But, and here's the big but, um, the 11th is also the last day I am accepting any assignments whatsoever. If I do not get it by 11.59pm on May 11th, it does not exist. That is the day this class closes. Um, I have to have my grades in to Sussex by the 13th. Um, it's always two days after the last day of the or the last scheduled day of class, which means I got to turn around all those exams and any late assignments and all the other stuff that's floating around by the 13th, or I will have hell to pay. And I'm pretty sure that SECc is going to be chaotic enough this semester with the coronavirus nonsense. Um, so I cannot budge on the 11th. I realize that I've been super flexible about due dates up until now. I've been offering extensions like Candy. I realize that, like, I have been extremely lenient knowing that the circumstances are shit for all of us. That's very nice of me, but it stops on the 11th. I cannot... But push that date around. I cannot move it. I cannot budget. I've had students who are like, I couldn't make it. I'm getting literally everything to you the day afterwards. And I have literally said to them, sorry, I can't accept this. You fail my class. Um, which sucks i hate doing that they obviously hate receiving that news but i seriously cannot budge on this like i am going to be swamped over the next week or two grading all those research papers um turning around the final exams like i cannot cannot um, afford to give you more time than that so on the 11th if it's not in it doesn't count if it does if you do turn stuff in up until that point i will still accept it i'll dock points for it being late unless we have an, origi- an arrangement but after the 11th nothing that is that is it that is our big deadline i cannot emphasize this enough um, so again brief outline of the schedule assuming that we are that you were listening to this around the 27th this week we're talking about pragmatism we will have a q and a session on pragmatism next uh, no quiz this week because you've got the research paper due on Friday. Um, next week, read Wittgenstein. We will talk about Wittgenstein on the 6th. No quiz next week either because we've got the exam to worry about. On the 6th, for our normal, normally scheduled Q&A session, we will probably spend most of our time talking about the review sheet um, and reviewing for the final exam but I do hope to actually squeeze some Wittgenstein discussion in there as well. Um, That weekend, be sure to take the exam, both portions, the objective and the essay portion. Um, On the 11th, I close the class. So all of your late assignments have to be turned in by then or else they will not count. Um, By 12.01 a.m. on the morning of May the 12th, That's it. Like, the class is closed, I will start in on the final grading procedures, and hopefully by Wednesday the 13th your grades will be up um, and you will be able to see them. As a rule, I do tend to give you like 12 hours notice before I submit them, um, just in case I've made a mistake. Um, So by all means, check my work, like when that email goes out check my work make sure that I've got all of your submissions if I missed anything let me know um and then on the 13th grades will go up and that's it class is done um that said thank you like this has been a really fun class um like I've taught a lot of sections of philosophy and a lot of sections of humanities and you guys have been really quick to pick things up Um, really quick to like put pieces together, perhaps a little too quick to run off on tangents. But honestly, I enjoy that way more than, you know, the class that just sits there staring at me all day and nothing happens. Um, So yeah, this has been a lot of fun. um, And I hope that it has been for you as well. Um, As much as like this is not my last lecture, I do kind of want to like give the send off here. So, you know, thank you everyone for participating and I hope that you have really enjoyed it. Um, But that said, enough sentimentality, enough bureaucracy, enough foolishness, let's talk about truth. Um, So one of the things we kind of haven't covered terribly formally in this class, even though it's super important to philosophy overall, um, is the theory of truth. And the reason why I stress this is because the pragmatists are very much making an attack on traditional theories of truth. Um, During the modern period especially, there sort of sprung up these two ideas of what truth is supposed to look like. Um, And these are not new ideas, they're rather just like a formalization of the ideas that have been around forever. Um, So those two ideas of truth are correspondence and coherence. Um, correspondence is perhaps the most basic understanding of truth. It is probably the definition of truth that you are most familiar with. Um, the correspondence of theory of truth basically states that truth is whatever corresponds to reality. Um, that is whether God exists or doesn't exist, the truth of that statement, God exists, is dependent on the actual existence of God in reality. Um, if you say um there is a hamburger stand at the corner of ninth and broadway and you go to ninth and broadway and there is no hamburger stand there then you have uttered a lie um your the value of your statement the truth or falsity of your statement depends on whether or not it conforms or corresponds to reality that's the correspondence theory of truth it is like the most famous it is the most basic it is the most obvious um and it is the one that Is typically like more informally called truth like if you're talking to a random person who is not philosophically trained and you and like they say to you it's raining outside and you say is that true what you probably have in mind is you know is it in fact raining uh if i look out the window will it in fact be raining now there are problems with the correspondence theory of truth as we've sort of poked at over the past few classes Um, Remember, for both Descartes and Hume, there are certain suspicions about truth that have been hovering around that make that correspondence theory a little bit more difficult to actually execute. Um, So, for example, remember Descartes was very suspicious of his senses. So, you know, if you said to him, Descartes, it's raining outside, Descartes might run to the window, but then he would might stop and say, well, I'm not, sh- like, it looks like it's raining outside. It seems to me like it is raining outside, but my eyes have been uh, able to deceive me. I could, like, put my hand out, but, you know, I could get, like, phantom um, raindrops on my hand. For all I know, there's some, like, demon who is deceiving me into thinking that it is raining outside. Um, What actual way is there for me to confirm that it is raining outside? As much as I want to believe that, you know, truth is what corresponds to reality, my interactions with reality are limited, sort of skewed, by the fact that I can only receive information about reality from my senses. Um, likewise, Hume, for all of his discussion of science, like, he is very grounded in the correspondence theory of truth, but at the same time he reframes it. He is saying, yes, you know, it is true that the sun will rise tomorrow because all of our experience confirms that, but that's all we have to go on. There's no rationality to it. There's no, you know, deductive verification that that's going to be the case. Um, truth for Hume is a correspondence theory of truth, but it is also singularly imperfect. We cannot guarantee the results of our observations. We can only guarantee them insofar as custom and habit confirm the likelihood to us, um, which isn't great. Like when Aristotle said, you know, correspondence theory of truth, when he's sort of outlining what that means his assumption was that we could absolutely rely on our senses, that like reality could in fact be known and understood, Um, but increasingly that's not the case. Especially once we enter into the 18th century with the German idealists, Um, like Kant says, you know, yes, we can trust our senses, yes, we can trust science, but he also uh, suggests that there's a lot about the world that we simply cannot know. Um, there is that noumenal world that is locked away from us. Just as Hume is saying you can't know the law of gravity, there is no actual binding law, there's no, like, physical constraint on the universe, all we are seeing is repeated effects over and over and over again, Kant basically says, yes, there are laws, we understand them as laws, but we also can't know what the actual state of a body an object is like I can't know what's going through your mind. I can't know if, like, the cup on my desk has its own independent thoughts. Um, I can't know if the you know static objects in the world are in, are capable of motion, but are just choosing not to not to move. Um, all of this is locked away from me in that numinal world. The interior life of other things around me is always far removed. And if that's the case, then there's only so much about reality that we can know. Maybe there is some force that governs the universe, a law of gravity that causes objects to stay in their current positions but we have no idea if it's a law in the sense of a scientific law something that is absolutely binding or perhaps something in the way of like a law that is handed down by the government like the planets have all been ordered to stay in their orbits and for some reason they can willfully choose either to obey or not to obey free will itself whether or not we have it is definitely a correspondence theory of truth question is it in fact something we possess but it is also something that is completely unverifiable Many of our philosophers have questioned this and come to this conclusion. So when Nietzsche comes out, guns blazing, and says Kant is full of crap, if we cannot in fact verify the you know reality of the world around us, then it is useless for us to try and we need to back off of this. Um, other postmodern philosophers sort of like get on this as well, and overwhelmingly they start to reject the correspondence theory of truth, useful as it may have been all of this time. Um, As much as we want to say, you know, what we know about the world corresponds to what the world is like, at the end of the day, there are too many factors that prevent us from fully understanding what that is. There are too many things in the way for us to guarantee, for us to properly verify that reality is what it makes it out to be. Um, There's too much we don't know. Um, There's too much dependent on our own observational process. I mean, just think of quantum mechanics, if you're familiar, like the world literally changes whether or not we observe it. Um, That implies that the correspondence theory of truth is insufficient to describe what all is going on. If Schrodinger's cat is in the box with the decaying radioactive object, we literally cannot verify at any moment whether or not the cat is dead until we open the box. And once we open the box, we literally change the state of the cat. Um, Or at least insofar as, like, the, you know, quantum theory is described and presented to us. Again, it gets even trickier at that point. Um, So a lot of people reject the correspondence theory of truth. As nice as it may be to think that, you know, our thoughts correspond to reality, can't guarantee it, and thus the theory isn't all that helpful. Um, so they turn to the second theory of truth, and that is the coherence theory of truth. Um, in the coherence theory of truth, truth is measured not based on whether it actually corresponds to reality, but rather whether or not it coheres, whether it fits, with all the other truth statements that have been made so far. Um, And this is frequently the refuge of rationalists or theologians, for example. Um, So, for example, when Descartes is talking about how, you know, God cannot be a deceiver because God, his idea of God, is of a perfect being, he is not necessarily looking at correspondence to confirm what he has to say he is not saying yeah i met god this time he's really a decent guy like no that's that's not his argument his argument is it is incoherent for a perfect being to also be a liar Um, a perfect being would necessarily tell the truth um this is what i mean by coherence it fits together um if in fact you're you know your previously asserted true statement doesn't fit with your new hypothesis, then that new hypothesis is not true. Um, Possibly one of the best ways to understand this in the modern age is to think of, like, the various stories we tell ourselves about the world or about politics. When you, like, learn the theory of evolution in your high school class, you will naturally be sort of, like, forced to either reject or accept the theory dependent on your your theological beliefs. If you believe that there is a God, that God created the world, that he created it in seven days the way that it says in the Bible, then the Darwinist evolution theory doesn't fit. It does not cohere with your understanding of truth. So you'll have to reject one or the other. You'll have to decide which of your theories of truth coheres better with your experiences and what else you assume to be true. Um, but since they will not fit together, one or the other must be rejected. Um, but importantly for the coherence theory of truth, you don't need at any time to fix this understanding of reality to reality. Um what makes it true isn't the fact that it's real. What makes it true is the fact that it fits with all of the other things that you believe. So this is honestly how a lot of conspiracy theories work. Um, like, if you accept the fact that, you know, the world is flat, then you reject any tr- any statement that rejects that understanding, but you will also accept any statement that can fit and fully, like, make your theory cohere. So, in order to make, you know, I believe in a flat earth coherently true, you also have to accept that, like, airplanes have this whole weird process of, like, getting you from Australia to California over the supposed gap. Um, You have to accept the fact that astronomers and scientists are all part of this, like, conspiratorial Illuminati cabal um, who is pulling the wool over our eyes. You have to be able to reject information that would challenge your theory while also presenting a sort of consistent view of the universe that allows your theory to exist and cohere. And this is not to say that like all coherence theories of truth are essentially conspiracy theories. The assumption here is truth will necessarily fit together. Like Descartes is not presenting a conspiracy theory when he says that God is good. He is saying this fits with all of the other information that I know about God rationally. Likewise, if you reject significant portions of the correspondence uh, theories presented by other people, if you reject you know, the fossil evidence, or if you reject um, the evidence of the theory of evolution, or for that matter, if you reject the truths presented in Christianity, like if you present, reject their theological presuppositions, um, you will come up with your own self-internally consistent understanding of how the world exists. Um, If we have two explanations for how the world came to be, you will choose the one that fits better with the other evidences, with the other information that you have. Because at the end of the day, you can't verify what happened, like, millions and billions of years ago. Um, You can only verify it based on, like, soil evidence and that requires an interpretive matrix of how this information works. If you reject any chunk of that data, then that opens up the possibility of an entirely new way of looking at the world. So here are our two primary theories. These are the two that have been like primarily suggested throughout the renaissance up through the modern period even into the postmodern period. Either Truth is what corresponds to reality, or truth is what fits with my pre-existing world view. Um, it, it coheres. It's correspondence, coherence. Now, the first real challenge to either of these theories of truth, and honestly, the only like substantial theory of truth besides these two, is the one we're talking about today, pragmatism. Um, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, a number of different philosophers like Peirce, like James, and many others, started tinkering with a possible rejection of these two theories of truth, both of which have their problems. Um, like, the correspondence theory is difficult to verify. The coherence theory allows you to believe all sorts of conspiracy nonsense. Um, these are both problems with these theories of truth. They are both imperfect. So these pragmatists instead come at truth from a different direction. Um, they start to look at truth as what works. Truth is not what reality tells us. Truth is not what internally consists with all of our other pre-existing data. Truth is whatever changes my behavior in a significant way. Whatever it is best for me to believe. Like, literally, William James writes in his, uh, essay that we read for today, truth is what I ought to believe. Um, but we'll come back around to that one in, in what pragmatism means. I want to start with Peirce, though. Um, the Fixation of Belief. Um, and I realize that this is kind of a tricksy essay. Like, this is a difficult one. Um, it is antiquated in its language. Both Peirce and James are writing in English, but they are both writing in English in the 19th century, which means that nobody has translated and updated their language um, to contemporary standards. Uh, and Purse especially, is really, really dry, Um, But Peirce is a really interesting scholar across the board. He's one of the great American philosophers. um, And there aren't a whole lot of them, to be perfectly honest. Um, Peirce is unique insofar as, like, he is not only a philosopher, but he is one of those philosophers that also spun off into a whole new discipline, namely linguistics. Uh, Peirce, along with Saussure, a French scholar, are sort of the founders of, of linguistics as a whole method. Um, And while Sosir knows what he's doing, he is literally saying, like, here is linguistics, it's a new way of studying language. Peirce, on the other hand, was more generalizing. He wasn't interested in founding new disciplines so much as exploring new ideas in all of their forms. Um, And in some cases, that means pragmatism, in some cases, that means looking at language. Um, He wasn't as interested in striating um so where Saussure founds linguistics and linguistics like many other disciplines before it breaks off from philosophy and becomes its own thing um linguistics to this day is largely divided between people who use Purse's method of identifying like linguistic elements and people who use Saussure's methods of identifying linguistic elements fun fact I'm a philosopher of language as mentioned this is kind of my jam um but Peirce's essay here is actually not, like, it. it's adjacent to the philosophy of language. It is still very much about how we put ideas together. Um, but at the same time, this is almost more of a historical look. Uh, as much as, like, this is a work of philosophy, this is also a work of philosophy conducted through the lens of history. How have people come about their beliefs historically? Um... And notice, like, right from the beginning, that's what he's doing. Um, So let's look at the fixation of belief. Page 1, 1246 in our textbook. Notice how he opens this whole essay. Few persons care to study logic because everybody conceives himself to be proficient enough in the art of reasoning already. But I observe that this satisfaction is limited to one's own ratiocination and does not extend to that of other men. The problem that Peirce is identifying here, in his rather antiquated and fairly, you know, mundane language, is that everybody thinks that they're good at logic, and everybody also thinks that everybody else is bad at logic. Um, We all think we have a really good grasp on how to understand the world. We think we all have a good nose for truth. We think we have a good sense of recognizing falsity, lies but we also think that everybody else is gullible and the fact of the matter is this is absurd like if we all believe we're good at logic then we should all equally be good at logic not we should all assume that other people are morons and yet this is what we frequently come to so what purse is going to do is kind of describe this phenomenon why it is that we believe what we believe while we also believe that other people's beliefs are dumb um and to do this we have to talk about belief how do we fix our beliefs how do we believe what we believe how do we come to believe what we believe um This first section is actually a sort of breakdown of how logic has been examined and re-examined historically, starting with the medieval schoolmen who believed that, like, logic was something that you taught very early, and once you were done teaching logic, everybody was done and there was nothing else to teach. Um, Moving on to the two Bacons, Roger and Francis Bacon, who both advance this theory of, like, experience being the foundation of what we believe and all of our knowledge actually springing from experience. Then to the scientists who push that forward, um, while Roger Bacon's understanding was experience was the beginning of truth, but, you know, didn't really know how that worked, to Francis Bacon saying that experience is the beginning of truth and it's through experimentation that we should verify this, the scientists begin to formalize that experimentation, even though they also have a very bad understanding of how to generate hypotheses. Um, as he puts it, like kind of hilariously, Kepler was blundering along in the most inconceivable way to us from one irrational hypothesis to another until after trying twenty two of these, he fell by the mere exhaustion of his invention upon the orbit which a mind well furnished with the weapons of modern logic would have tried almost at the at, at the outset, meaning while there is method to Kepler's madness. Um, He does land on the truth eventually. He does so through basically just trial and error, um, which is not ideal. His beliefs are in fact tested, which is good, but they are also not ordered, which is bad. Um, By contrast, he looks at Lavoisier and Darwin and says these are scholars who actually do have a method both to their verification of experience, but also to their sort of hypotheses about how the world might work. They more focusedly find or alight on what the truth is. But now, as much as this is like interesting, it's also kind of just a preface to what he actually wants to talk about. He wants to talk about how this works So if we look at the beginning of section two, he says, The object of reasoning is to find out, from the consideration of what we already know, something else which we do not know. Consequently, reasoning is good, if it be such as to give a true conclusion from true premises, and not otherwise. Now notice... Peirce isn't, like, suggesting a pragmatist theory of truth at this point. He is suggesting a correspondence theory of truth at this point. The distinction he is making is that belief doesn't necessarily correspond to truth. Um, Why we believe a thing isn't necessarily related to it being really true, it being correspondently true. Um... So, notice, he says, he continues, Thus, the question of validity is purely one of fact and not of thinking. A being the premises and B being the conclusion. The question is whether these facts are really so related. That is that if A is, B is. If so, the inference is valid. If not, not. It is not in the least the question whether when the premises are accepted by the mind, we feel an impulse to accept the conclusion also. It is true that we do generally reason correctly by nature, but that is an accident. The true conclusion would remain true if we had no impulse to accept it, and the false one would remain false, though we could not resist the tendency to believe in it. In short, he's saying there is a huge difference between logic and rationalization on the one hand, and what is true, factually, really, correspondently true, on the other. We may be inclined to believe that there is a God, because a perfect God could not not exist, but that doesn't change the fact that it is irrelevant to whether or not God actually exists. Our convictions, our propensity to believe, have very little to do with the actual the actual substance of truth, whether or not it is, in fact, verifiably, really true. So his second paragraph, he says, we are doubtless in the main logical animals, but we are not perfectly so. Most of us, for example, are naturally more sanguine and hopeful than logic would justify. We seem to be so constituted that in the absence of any facts to go upon, we are happy and self-satisfied, so that the effect of experience is continually to counteract our hopes and aspirations. In short, we, left to our own devices, left ignorant, will make ourselves happy. Experience, truth, knowledge, usually serves only when we are unhappy, when we have been made unhappy, when knowledge corrects our happy, sanguine hopefulness. We may think to ourselves, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to become president, And you may persist in believing this. It is comfortable to think that you will have that kind of power. That you will be that significant a person. That history will remember you that well. But... Upon, you know, first graduating from college and struggling through your classes, and then, you know, having problems getting into a campaign field, and then finding that, like, you need to raise money from people who you disagree with, um, and then finding that you're going to have to sacrifice your ideals in order to make your position, and then coming up with the fact that, you know, you can't, you fail at winning your first election, all of these experiences demonstrate to you that this might not be the case. It might be a lot harder than you think to actually become president. Um, And as you continue to live, as you continue to get more experiences, you will find that it is more and more and more out of keeping with your hopes and aspirations. But, importantly, as long as we remain ignorant, we will not be challenged that way. And so it makes all the much more sense for the person who wants and is convinced that they will become president to never try to become president. Um, if you do not, like, actually examine yourself, if you say to yourself, I am a great artist and then never produce a work of art, if you say to yourself, I am, you know, a great leader and never take, a, take the opportunity to lead, then you can safely hold your conviction, you can safely have your belief because it hasn't been challenged. Experience hasn't taught us otherwise. Um, Now, for Peirce, he notices that this is the case, that we frequently rest comfortably in our ignorance. Um, As much as he does go on to talk about how there are these guiding principles that lead us to believe um, true things as opposed to false things, and that these guiding principles can be to some degree formulated and, you know, like codified. You'll notice in section three, um, it's he states in the second paragraph this is not all which distinguishes doubt from belief there is a practical difference our beliefs guide our desires and shape our actions the assassins or followers of the old man of the mountain used to rush into death at his least command because they believed that obedience to him would ensure everlasting felicity had they doubted this they would not have acted as they did so it is with every belief according to its degree the feeling of believing is a more or less sure indication of there being established in our nature some habit which will determine our actions doubt never has such an effect. In short, beliefs change our behavior, doubts as a rule do not. Instead, as he continues, doubt is an uneasy and dissatisfied state from which we struggle to free ourselves and pass into the state of belief, while the latter is a calm and satisfactory state which we do not wish to avoid or to change to be- a belief in anything else. On the contrary, we cling tenaciously not merely to believing, but to believing just what we do believe. We fight not to have to change our opinions. We are rendered uncomfortable when someone challenges what we believe. Doubt is something that only exists temporarily. We only ever doubt to stop doubting, to come upon a belief that we can fully embrace and get ourselves out of this doubt doubt is uncomfortable uneasy and dissatisfied he says so we are inclined to be gullible is what he's saying we are not looking for the capital t truth the correspondent truth Um, Instead, as he says in section four, about halfway down that big paragraph in the second column, with the doubt, therefore, the struggle begins, and with with the cessation of doubt, it ends. Hence, the sole object of inquiry is the settlement of opinion. We may fancy that this is not enough for us, and that we seek not merely an opinion, but a true opinion. But put this fancy to the test, and it proves groundless, for as soon as a firm belief is reached, we are entirely satisfied whether the belief be false or true you remember when we talked about Nietzsche, Nietzsche had that example of like you wake up in the middle of the night from a cannon shot and you immediately like try and justify the cannon shot to you in the least objectionable way possible, the way that makes the most sense that challenges your belief system the least. Peirce is saying the same thing, when in fact we find that one of our beliefs is false, we will immediately light on the first thing that we can get hold of that makes our internally held belief system consistent. Um... Maybe there is some really compelling argument that there is no God, or that there is, for that matter. Your conclusion will not be to immediately, to immediately accept this new position as true. You will, your conclusion will be to try and synthesize what you have found with everything that you already believe. To cause yourself as little doubt, as little disturbance as possible. Thus, as he says, the goal of inquiry... The goal of having doubt is to stop doubting. The goal is to find the first fairly firm belief that we can sit upon. To, not to put too fine a point on it, but this is self-confirming. Um, like, if, take for example our current whole coronavirus thing. Like, you will find that there are a whole bunch of people out there who are, you know, coming up with their conspiracy theories for why, you know, like rich liberals are trying to like pull the wool over our eyes and are deceiving us about you know the information that is available um as much as you know this is like speculative and just kind of mean-spirited of me to say i think that there's something really true and something very relevant to what purse is saying insofar as like people who voted for trump are finding ways to justify his decisions um, he People who voted for Trump are saying, you know, I made the right choice. Liberals are wrong and conservatives are right. And so they will light upon examples like, you know, um, there is like the Gates Foundation is behind a lot of the information and a lot of the vaccination tests as evidence of there being a conspiracy to take him down. Likewise, liberals will believe the same thing. When they see, you know, a whole bunch of deaths spike in a certain area, they will attribute it to Trump's bad policies. They will say to themselves, I am justified in not voting for Trump, just as the Trump voters are saying, I am justified in voting for Trump. Given new evidence, whether it's a bunch of deaths in a certain place or, you know, a su- surprising lack of deaths in someplace else, both sides will basically make that information fit their own perspective, their own worldview. They will see it not as, you know, raw data um, possibly confirming the chaos of the universe around them, but rather raw data confirming the beliefs that they already hold, even to cross purposes. Um, So, as Peirce concludes, the settlement of opinion is the sole end of inquiry, is a very important proposition. We are not interested in the capital T truth, the correspondent truth, what reality says. What we are interested in, as human beings, is just to get out of our doubt as quickly as possible. To come up with anything, at all, that we can believe and that fits our own existing world view. We want to be disturbed and we want to be wrong as little as possible. And we will grasp at whatever we can get to make sure that we are not wrong and that we do not have to challenge our own convictions. Um, So this is basically like his central thesis here. If in fact belief has nothing to do with reality and instead has to do with us finding our own comfort... What can we conclude about that? What are the ways that we come about belief? Um, How do we decide what to believe? And to do this, he has basically four methods of belief. Um, The first method of fixing belief you'll find in section 5, page 1250. Um, you'll notice like the beginning of section five starts, if the settlement of opinion is the sole object of inquiry, and if belief is the nature of a habit, why should we not attain the desired end by taking any answer to a question, which we may fancy and constantly reiterating it to ourselves, dwelling on all which may conduce to that belief and learning to turn with contempt and hatred from anything which might disturb it. If I believe that, you know, Trump is a monster, any policy of Trump's that causes something positive to happen, I will reject. It's an accident. It's a coincidence. It has nothing to do with P- President Trump. Likewise, if I voted for Trump and think that he is, you know, the only thing standing between this country and oblivion, um, I will believe any evidence that comes about that says something bad about Trump, I will say, oh, that's just the liberal media distorting facts or biasing and or trying to attack our president. Um, all we, we turn with turn with contempt from anything that disagrees with us. We accept gladly anything that agrees with us, um, and we do so tenaciously. This is the first method of belief, the method of tenacity. So notice The second paragraph on the second column on page 1250, This method of fixing belief, which may be called the method of tenacity, will be unable to hold its ground in practice. This is the belief that, you know, whatever I believe, I will just hold to. Like, I don't care what anyone else has to say. Um, As he quotes earlier on in, like, uh, around three quarters of the way down in the first column, I hold steadfastly to the truth, and the truth is always wholesome. Um, I don't care what other people have to say. Um, As per... Sort of. Perse uses the example of the ostrich burying his head in the sand as danger approaches. It very likely takes the happiest course. It hides the danger and then calmly says there is no danger. And if it feels perfectly sure that there is none, why should it raise its head to see? Um, The ostrich doesn't see what could happen to him and thus doesn't believe that it can happen to him and doesn't see any reason to go looking for information why there is something bad happening. Um, Like the ostrich, the tenacious believer... is convinced that they are right and doesn't see any reason to go verify their information. Doesn't see any reason to challenge their own beliefs. Why should they? Um, Belief is all there is. Um, Belief is the only thing that they care about. They don't care about capital T truth. Nobody cares about capital T truth. They just want to be right or they just want to be out of doubt. Um, So by not doubting, by not observing challenges by rejecting flat out with no reason any data that opposes them, they don't have to have their beliefs challenged. They fix tenaciously to what they believe. But for Peirce, this is untenable. It's inconsistent. The social impulse is against it. The man who adopts it will find that other men think differently from him, and it will be apt to occur to him in some saner moment that their opinions are quite as good as his own, and this will shake his confidence in his belief. This conception that another man's thought or sentiment may be equivalent to one's own is a distinctly new step, and a highly important one. It arises from an impulse too strong in man to be suppressed, without danger of destroying the human species. Unless we make ourselves hermits, we shall necessarily influence each other's opinions, so that the problem becomes how to fix belief not in the individual merely, but in the community." If you ha- are in contact with people who believe differently from you, you will have your opinions swayed. That's kind of why the internet is so dangerous, because it does sort of like isolate people of the same belief system together, and all they end up hearing is their same beliefs echoed over and over again, or more beliefs that, you know, consistently cohere with all of their, you know, pre-existing beliefs, rather than anything that actually challenges or questions it. Um... But the problem then becomes, as as Peirce observes, fixing belief not in the individual, but in the whole community altogether. Um, This is what he will go on to call the method of authority. Um, And this will absolutely sound like every authoritarian system you've ever heard of. This sounds like Nazis, this sounds like fascists, this sounds like dystopian societies, like George Orwell is all about this in 1984. Um so notice this paragraph let the will of the state act then instead of that of the individual let an institution be co- created which shall have for its object to keep to correct doctrines before the attention of the people to reiterate them perpetually and to teach them to the young having at the same time power to prevent contrary doctrines from being taught advocated or expressed let all possible causes of a change of mind be removed from men's apprehensions let them be kept ignorant lest they should learn of some reason to think otherwise than they do let their passions be enlisted, so that they may regard private and unusual opinions with hatred and horror. Then let all men who reject the established belief be terrified into silence. Let the people turn out and tar and feather such men, or let inquisitions be made into the manner of thinking of suspected persons, and when they are found guilty of forbidden beliefs, let them be subjected to some signal punishment. In short, If, in fact, the individual's tenacity or tenacious belief, this method of tenacity, is challenged by other people around them, then let the entire community be ruled. Let one belief be enforced by the government or other powers in place. And as much as, again, we sort of think of, like, contemporary, like dystopias or fascist institutions keep in mind purse is writing in the 19th century he doesn't he's never seen hitler or mussolini um the closest the experience that he's drawing from is actually of the christian church um he's looking at the inquisition he is looking at the crusades he is looking at witch hunts um this is his example um and it's the same one uh, as he says, this method has, from the earliest times, been one of the chief means of upholding correct theological and political doctrines and of preserving their universal or Catholic character. He cites examples of Rome um, and Roman emperors who sort of like recontextualized history in order to support their regime. Uh, But he also observes cruelties always accompany this system, and when it is consistently carried out, they become atrocities of the most horrible kind in the eyes of any rational man. The ultimate problem with this system of authority, this method of authority, is at the end of the day, it looks awful in practice like murdering people or imprisoning people or, you know, torturing people because they have a different belief than you, typically raises red flags to the community at large. People don't like to see it. Um, they don't like being afraid. Um, but all for all that, he still stresses, for the mass of mankind, then, there is perhaps no better method than this. If it is their highest impulse to be intellectual slaves, then slaves they ought to remain. People, again, as we've stressed, aren't looking for the truth. They're looking for any belief that they can fix upon. If that's their only standard, if they are perfectly happy burying their heads in the sand um, and just feeling safe, feeling like their beliefs are true, and not bothering to question them, then this method of authority is really successful. It will work astonishingly well. It is incredibly enticing, is what he's saying. It's very, very tempting. However... He, importantly, also points out that there are flaws with this system as well. No institution can undertake to regulate opinions upon every subject. Only the most important ones can be attended to, and on the rest, men's minds must be left to the action of natural causes. This imperfection will be no source of weakness so long as men are in such a state of culture that one opinion does not influence another, that is, so long as they cannot put two and two together. But in the most priest-ridden states, some individuals will be found who are raised above that condition. At the end of the day, you will always find someone in your state who disagrees. As much as you may try and stamp out truth, as much as you may try and stamp out like actual free thinking, individual ideas and expressions, at the end of the day, someone will show up and put that to the test. Their candor cannot resist the reflection that there is no reason to rate their own views at a higher value than those of other nations and other centuries, and this gives rise to doubts in their minds. You cannot stamp it out. The state is not so thorough, so all-encompassing, so omnipotent as to be able to stamp out new ideas. Instead, this brings about what he would will later call opri- the method of a priori knowledge, or the method of a priori uh, belief. Um what he describes as the willful adherence to a belief and the arbitrary forcing it of, of it upon others must therefore both be given up and a new method of settling opinions must be adopted. Uh, the method of authority doesn't work. Which will not only produce an impulse to believe, but you'll also decide what proposition it is which is to be believed. Let the action of natural preferences be unimpeded then, and under their influence let men conversing together and regarding matters in different lights gradually develop beliefs in harmony with natural causes. Um, This method resembles that by which conceptions of art have been brought to maturity. The most perfect example of it is to be found in the history of metaphysical philosophy. Here we have a system which is not governed with cruelty or with, you know, burying one's head in the sand, but instead naturally inclines us to believe what we are naturally inclined to believe, the things that fit together with our pre-existing system, this a priori philosophy, a priori knowledge, rationalization in the sense that Descartes is doing reason, um. And he praises this. This method is far more intellectual and respectable from the point of view of reason than either of the others which we have noticed, but its failure has been the most manifest. It makes of inquiry something similar to the development of taste, but taste, unfortunately, is always more or less a matter of fashion, and accordingly, metaphysicians have never come to any fixed agreement But the pendulum has swung backward and forward between a more material and a more spiritual philosophy, from the earliest times to the latest. And so from this, which has been called the a priori method, we are driven, in Lord Bacon's phrase, to a true induction. We have examined into this a priori method as something which promised to deliver our opinions from their accidental and capricious element, but development, while it is a process which eliminates the effect of some casual circumstances, only magnifies that of others. This method, therefore, does not differ in a very essential way from that of authority. As much as, you know, a priori philosophy seems to yield interest, good, interesting results, it is, at the end of the day, subject to the whims of fashion. What counts as reason at one time may be different from what counts as another. Um, and enforcing it just brings us right back to that method of authority with all of its cruelties and all of its transparent quashing of differing viewpoints. So the method that he raises instead, his fourth method and the best method from Perse's standpoint... He says to satisfy our doubts, therefore, it is necessary that a method should be found by which our beliefs may be caused by nothing human, but by some external permanency, by something upon which our thinking has no effect. Such is the method of science, he says. There are real things whose characters are entirely independent of our opinions about them. Those realities affect our senses according to regular laws, and though our sensations are as different as our relations to the objects, yet by taking advantage of the laws of perception we can ascertain by reasoning how things really are. And any man, if he have sufficient experience and reason enough about it, will be led to the one true conclusion. What he's basically saying is the correspondence theory of truth is the best theory of truth. If it confirms with reality, if science in all of its experimental glory can confirm that it is the case, if trusting our senses and trusting in reality um, yields concrete knowledge, then we should believe that. But notice, as much as he is saying the correspondence theory of truth is the best theory of truth, he is justifying it not by saying because reality, but instead he's saying that reality itself is convenient. This theory helps us find truth in a way that does not depend on, you know, cruel autocrats or fashionable metaphysicians or burying one's head in the sand. He says the assumption of science is that there is real things. Um, The assumption of science is that it is independent of our opinions, of our observation, of our beliefs. Um, These are assumptions and they cannot be confirmed by science. The new conception here involved is that of reality. It may be asked how I know that there are any realities. If this hypothesis is the sole support of my method of inquiry, my method of inquiry must not be used to support my hypothesis. You cannot justify with science the existence of a real world. You cannot question that experimentation works, given science. Um, just as Hume was saying, you know, once you try and dig, once you suspect your own senses, once you try and dig into, you know, what justifies my faith in the senses, you lose everything. Peirce is building off of that idea here. Um, but notice he has an answer. The reply is this. One, if investigation cannot be regarded as proving that there are real things, it at least does not lead to a contrary conclusion, but the method and the conception on which it is based remain ever in harmony. In short, maybe you can't prove that real things exist, but you can't disprove them either. Inquiry does not cause you to stop believing in the real world, even if it does make you suspicious of it. Um, so therefore, at the very best, you can say this works. Like, you will never find an investigation beyond the bounds of science that suggests that reality does not exist in any real way. That person still has to go to the bathroom. They still need to eat several times a day. Um, they still need to trust their senses so far. Um, no inquiry has ultimately rejected that. Even Descartes ultimately concluded the senses were trustworthy. Um, No ulterior methods of rationalization have ever demonstrated that the real world does not exist, and thus science built on the real world is, for the most part, trustworthy. Even if it's not perfectly justified, even if it's not deductively true, it doesn't matter. Two, the feeling which gives rise to any method of fixing belief is a dissatisfaction at two repugnant propositions, but here already is a vague concession that there is some one thing to which a proposition should conform. Nobody, therefore, can really doubt that there are realities, or if he did, doubt would not be a source of dissatisfaction. The hypothesis, therefore, is one which every mind admits, so that the social impulse does not cause men to doubt it. The whole business of there being reality is questioned only by the fact that you have two contradictory propositions. But there, if you have two contradictory propositions, then that would imply that you are making the assumption that there is no reality and no authoritative government, no community, is ever going to assert that that is the case. Um, to put it bluntly, um, there. if you assume reality, and we justified assuming reality a moment ago, then you can pin all of your observations, all of your claims to that reality, and you don't need to entertain any contradictory information. More than that, you will not have anyone suggesting that there is no reality. Like, that would be ridiculous. If there was no reality, why would they even make that claim? They wouldn't assume that there is anyone to even hear that there is that claim. They wouldn't assume that saying it would make the world any better. Um, So once again, it's ridiculous, self-defeating. Let science reign. Three, everybody uses the scientific method about a great many things and only ceases to use it when he does not know how to apply it. We are already doing science all the time. The only time we stop doing science is when we forget how to do science or when we don't know how to do science or when we don't know how science would expect us to proceed. So it's natural to us as well as being completely irrefutable. Lastly, experience of the method has not led us to doubt it, but on the contrary, scientific investigation has had the most wonderful triumphs in, in, in the way of settling opinion. Unlike a priori reasoning, which ultimately fell into squabbling and doubt, which ultimately made us suspect the people who were conducting it, science has succeeded, largely. Um, its failures are few and far between. Um, where they fail, it is usually not the failure of the method, but rather the people conducting the method. Um... So at the end of the day, Peirce is saying, you know, given these four methods of fixing belief, tenacity, burying your head in the sand, authority, enforcing it using the government or other uh, structures, a priori reasoning, which, you know, is subject to fashion and metaphysical, and then science, which works, we should trust science. Science is the best method. Now he says there are advantages to the other ones like science as great as it is ultimately does yield a lot of doubting it takes a lot of time it causes you know disagreements because you know people will interpret data in different ways He emphasizes in his last couple paragraphs each of the advantages of the other methods. The a priori method is awesome because it is comfortable. The method of authority will almost always govern the bunches of mankind. At the end of the day, most of you do not need to look up scientific truths. You're willing to accept them as they come out through your textbook. Um, If the government says Darwin is right, Christianity is wrong, you'll just accept it and move on. Um, And he also admires tenacity. Uh, you'll notice on page 1254, about two-thirds of the way down, But most of all, I admire the method of tenacity for its strength, simplicity, and directness. Men who pursue it are distinguished for their decision of character, which becomes very easy with such a mental rule. They do not waste time in trying to make up their minds to do to what they want, but fastening like lightning upon whatever alternative comes first, they hold to it to the end, whatever happens, without an instant's irresolution. This is one of the splendid qualities which generally accompany brilliant, unlasting success. It is impossible not to envy the man who can dismiss reason, although we know how it must turn out at last. Tenacity looks so good. Um, it is a very desirable state of affairs. It inspires confidence. We want to be like that. We want to be convicted. We want to have no doubts. But notice that line. It generally accompanies brilliant unlasting success. It looks great and people will buy into it in droves, but it won't last. It cannot stand the test of time. Eventually someone will come along, challenge it, and all of those convictions will fall apart. Um, So the reason why I want to stress this is because, again, we have a lot of problems determining what is true these days. Notice how Purse isn't actually interested in what is real here. He is asking what works. As much as he is lighting on truth as what works, he is not doing it because truth, he is doing it because it works, because it is pragmatic. We ought to believe it because it is effective, not because it is true. Um, He is suggesting that tenacity, as nice as it sounds, ultimately will fail. That's why we should not go along with it. Um... That's why it will ultimately cause us unhappiness. Not because it's false, but because at the end of the day, it won't work. It will ultimately get proven false and thus not work. Now, James comes at this from the other direction. James looks at pragmatism from... As like a whole cloth, as a whole system. Peirce is kind of practicing pragmatism before pragmatism is a thing. He is subjecting truth to the definition of pragmatism. To the uh, the constraints of pragmatism. To the standards of pragmatism. Um, He is saying truth works because it works pragmatically. Um, James, by contrast, is saying truth is what works. And it does move. Um, Now, I don't have a lot of time to get into what pragmatism means, because I went long on Purse and went long on our other discussions, but I do want to hit on a couple of details. Notice that his starting point is a sort of debunking of metaphysics. He's got that great example of going camping with a bunch of his philosopher friends, and apparently, like, he went fishing or something, and they're all standing around watching this squirrel going around the tree. And this one guy is walking around the tree as the squirrel goes around the tree, such that, like, the squirrel is always directly opposite from him. And he asks himself, Did I, in fact, go around the squirrel? And there's this big debate because, you know, like, on the one hand, yes, he did go around the tree, and the squirrel was on the tree, but on the other hand, like, the squirrel was never, you know, fixed on the tree, so every time Time that he went around the squirrel like he didn't actually go around it. Like at no point had he successfully been on the one side of the squirrel. He had never been against the squirrel's back, not his belly. So James comes back and they're asking him about it, and James responds, "What do you want to believe?" Um, if, on the contrary, or which party is right, I said, depends on what you practically mean by going round the squirrel. If you mean passing from the north of him, to the east, then to the south, and to the west, and then to the north of him again, obviously the man does go round him, for he occupies these successive positions. But if, on the contrary, you mean being first in front of him, then on, on the right of him, then behind him, then on his left, and finally in front again, it is quite as obvious that the man fails to go round him. For by the compensating movements the squirrel makes, he keeps his belly turned toward the man all the time, and his Back turned away. Make the distinction, and there is no occasion for any further dispute. You are both right and both wrong according as you conceive the verb to go round in one practical fashion or the other. In short, what does going around actually mean? He does the classic philosophical distinction of making a distinction. Um, he wants to say, all right, what do you mean by this statement? If this is what you mean, then yes, you do go around the squirrel. If this is what you mean, then no, you don't go around the squirrel. You don't go around the squirrel insofar as you are ever behind the squirrel, but you do go around the squirrel insofar as you are on all sides of the squirrel at one point in time. Um, pragmatism, then, is a rejection of any sense of truth that isn't effective, that doesn't have pragmatic value, that doesn't change our behavior. If in fact we're standing around saying, you know, am I going around the squirrel or am I not going around the squirrel, it doesn't matter. It's not going to change anyone's perspective. The only The only way that going round the squirrel means anything is insofar as it changes our behavior or our understanding about the world. This is a purely verbal argument, and thus it's garbage, is what James is saying. It's pointless. It doesn't help us. It doesn't lead us to cause anything true, or to cause us to believe that anything is true. In short, as he puts on at the bottom of the paragraph at the top of the second column on 1269, in what respects would the world be different if this alternative or that were true? If I can find nothing that would become different, then the alternative has no sense. Not that it's false, but that it is senseless, it is meaningless, it is unimportant. Um, pragmatism is, as he says on page 1270, a turn away from abstraction and insufficiency, from verbal solutions, from bad a priori reasons, from fixed principles, closed systems, and pretended absolutes and origins. The pragmatist turns toward concreteness and adequacy, towards facts, towards action, and towards power. Um, he is not interested in merely verbal arguments in like big abstract conversations and this whole you know like what is real what would reality look like can we trust our senses it doesn't matter we do trust our senses Um, if in fact reality is different from what it seems to be would it affect us in any way if not then it doesn't matter Um, as opposed to the rationalists and uh, these sorts of like metaphysicians, James is looking towards, uh, looking away from first principles, these sort of ideas that spawn ideas, these abstractions, and instead looking at consequences, facts, show me what the actual cause would be. Um, His conclusion is that truth, at least as we understand it, is always multiple and temporary. Um, So truth is whatever is useful at the current time. Like Peirce, he recognizes that people don't want to believe radically new things. Nobody believes something that completely rejects everything that, you know, that, that goes against their current beliefs. Um, So notice on page 1272, this new idea is then adopted as the true one. It preserves the older stock of truths with a minimum of modification, stretching them just enough to make them admit the novelty, but conceiving that in ways as familiar as the case leaves possible. An outre explanation, violating all our preconceptions, would never pass for a true account of novelty. We should scratch round industriously till we have found something less eccentric. The most violent revolutions in an individual's belief leave most of his old order standing. Time and space, cause and effect nature and history and one's own biography remain untouched new truth is always a go-between a smoother over of transitions it marries old opinion to new fact so as to ever show a minimum of jolt a maximum of continuity to a certain degree he concludes everything here is plastic truth even scientific truth as Peirce was talking about it is temporary It only exists insofar as it gets us from our old set of beliefs to a new set of beliefs. It only exists and is only valuable insofar as it challenges us, but doesn't challenge us too much. Like Peirce acknowledges, all we want is the most convenient belief available to us. James confirms that by saying, yes, and therefore truth is whatever we believe averaged with whatever we need to believe whatever is new, whatever corresponds to the new information. As he says on page 1273, a new opinion counts as true just in proportion as it gratifies the individual's desire to assimilate the novel and his experience to his beliefs and stock. What is new with what is old. So as a a result, pragmatists see truth as being very much against the old ideas of truth. On page 1274, he mentions that the rationalist Sees truth as being objective. It is fixed. It is absolute. It is singular, and it is abstract. But importantly, for James, that makes it useless. Um, if it is objective, it is objective by whose standard? Who gets to decide that? Um, if it is fixed, then it is useless. Like it is not something that we can we can test or challenge, and therefore there's no way of determining whether or not it's wrong. If it's absolute then it is supposedly holding for everyone, but what in our experience actually does that? By contrast, the pragmatists see truth as being subjective, as as temporary, historical, plural, and concrete. It is something that you can touch. It is something that will change over time as we become more accustomed to new truths. It is something that will only depend on our time, our place, our own perspective. As he says on page 1274, truth for the pragmatist becomes a class name for all sorts of definite working values and experience. Um, But he also notices that the business of pragmatism is also to recognize how we got to this definition of truth. The rationalist accuses us of denying truth, whereas we have only sought to trace exactly why people follow it and always ought to follow it. Your typical ultra-abstractionist fairly shudders at concreteness. Other things equal, he positively prefers the pale and spectral. If the two universes were offered, he would always choose the skinny outline rather than the rich thicket of reality. It is so much purer, cleverer, or clearer, nobler. This is just what Nietzsche is saying when he says that, like, all metaphysicians are mummifying things, that they refuse to accept anything that isn't permanent, uh, objective, absolute. For the pragmatist, like for Nietzsche, truth should be subjective, it should be located in time, it should be relative to our concrete experiences. Um, It converts the absolutely empty notion of a static relation of correspondence, what that may mean we must ask later, between our minds and reality into that of a rich and active commerce between particular thoughts of ours and the great universe of other experiences in which they play their parts and have their uses. If, in fact, we cannot understand and comprehend the universe at a glance, if we can't have a correspondence theory of truth that absolutely conforms to what the universe is like because we can't trust that, then the best that we can do is come up with successive pragmatic truths which bring us closer and closer and closer to that reality. We can't say, is what I believe true, real? We have to say, is what I believe true enough for what I am able to believe, for what I am willing to believe. Um, and with that in mind, he like goes on to talk about religion, but we really don't have the time to sort of look at that. Um, what I want to stress here for James and the pragmatists overall, before we like call it a day because my lecture time is running short, um, there is a difference here between like pure pragmatism and pure relativity on the other hand i know that as americans we're always inclined to say you know whatever you believe is true for you whatever whatever you want to believe that's that's the truth that's that's what he largely what we largely understand subjective truth to mean. um truth is not defined by some objective standard something that everybody believes in truth is defined by what we believe in but that's not the same as what what James is talking about in pragmatism. And generally, no philosopher worth his salt believes in a pure relativism. Relativism, at the end of the day, states there is no objective truth. Truth is relative. It is purely relative to where any individual stands. And coming from a relativistic position, you ultimately have to conclude there is no way to convince anyone of anything. Like, if somebody believes that, you know, there is like a flat earth and somebody else believes that there is a round earth both people are equally right and both people are equally wrong and neither of them will ever be able to convince the other one of anything and that's nonsense i want to stress that that is nonsense it is ridiculous it is bullshit it is the terrible worst philosophy of truth that you will ever encounter The pragmatists do believe in the correspondence of theory of truth, they just don't think that they can get to it, and given that they can't get to it, the best that they can do is this pragmatism. They can get as close as they possibly can, but that's according to standards, standards of science, like Peirce suggests. As awesome as the other modes of belief may be, they are, at the end of the day, wrong, and they all will, at the end of the day, fail. Um, The person who buries their head in the sand is not, in fact, doing good believing. They will, in fact, be challenged, or they will be so antagonistic to challengers that nobody will want to interact with them. But that doesn't mean that that person is right. It doesn't by a long shot. Um, That said, as much as, like... Peirce and company claim that science is, you know, the best source of truth. It is the best source of truth because it works, because it functions. It does what it says on the box, as opposed to, like, a priori reasoning, which screws up, or authoritative reasoning, which, at the end of the day, is just mean, cruel, and will also fall apart. What I want to stress here is... Do not become a relativist. Like, if you take anything away from my class, and definitely anything away from this whole pragmatism discussion, it should not be, you know, truth is whatever you make it out to be. It isn't. Um, If you get shot by a sniper from 50 yards away, and you don't see the sniper, and you don't see the shot, and you don't hear it, you will be just as dead as if somebody had, like, stabbed you and you knew that it was happening. You can't just think yourself past whatever is actually happening in the world. Truth is not what you decide it is. Um, And don't let other people say that it is. Like, don't go on the internet and say, you know, whatever you believe is fine, it's not. Uh, People who believe wrong things are believing wrong things and sometimes that can be like bad for them, but oftentimes it can also be bad for everyone else. Like, look around. Having right knowledge in our quarantine is going to be really a deciding factor of how long we are in this situation as well as how many people die as a result of it. Bad information will poison people's minds and may in fact have a serious negative effect on the world around us. Um, It's not that simple. That said, you shouldn't run headlong like combatively into arguments online like if your uncle quotes some nonsense about the flat earth, please feel free not to engage. Um... But also don't just accept it, don't like sit in the back of your mind and say, hmm, maybe he has a point. Like, no, find the sources that you trust, find the people that you rely upon, find the modes of reasoning that make the most sense to you. Um, and I'm not saying that like whatever mode of reasoning you decide upon will be right, I say that knowing full well that the that truth will out. Um, that if you read Breitbart news and if you read a whole bunch of like hardcore right wing or for that matter hardcore left wing propaganda and like radical newspapers, what you will end up with is a very skewed vision of the world. Not to say that they're wrong on any given point. like Breitbart can tell the truth just as much as the New York Times can. It's just a matter of recognizing when they are doing that and when they are not. Um, notice especially that there's a huge difference. Between bias and actual misinformation, lies. Um, if someone tells you uh, that you know Trump's like Trump's popularity rating is higher than it has been for six months, um, inquire into that information. There is a difference between yes, that statement is true. Like a a, po- a poll has been done, and in fact, that is the case. And someone saying that it is the case because Trump is doing the right thing right now. Um, The interpretation is different from the raw data. The New York Times is a reputable newspaper. It is reputable despite the fact that it has a clear left-leaning bias. Um, The reason why it's reputable is because it reports things that happened. Um, it does not report that, like, Hillary Clinton has a child pornography ring in the basement of a pizzeria. Um, if it reports on that, it will report on that because there is a rumor going around that Hillary Clinton has a child pornography ring in a pizzeria. Um, when ultimately it is debunked, the New York Times will report that it is debunked. Like, somebody went into the pizzeria with a gun and tried to shoot up the place and found that there was no basement at all in that pizzeria. Um, the important signifying detail here. Like, the what should cause you to question a news article or a post online or a conspiracy theory um, is a combination both of verifying information, can they in fact back up their facts, but also a recognition of when they are doing interpretation and when that interpretation is unjustified. Remember our conversation about fallacies? Well, one of the big ones is post hoc ergo propter hoc. Correlation does not imply causation. That a thing, like, maybe there are fewer deaths now than there were a week ago. That doesn't mean that it's Trump's policies specifically that are causing the decline. Maybe there are more deaths now than there was a week ago. That doesn't necessarily mean that Trump's policies are the things that are responsible. Find out the reasoning. Don't jump to conclusions. Remember what Descartes said about going from I have an idea to judgment? That's the dangerous move. Um, by all means, collect data, look at multiple sources, try and confirm if the data is correct, and then go and interpret it and see which interpretations are valid and which interpretations are not. Um, But that's the process. Know that as soon as you are making an interpretation, you're wading into deeper waters. And recognize that most of the sites that are spewing misinformation are doing that interpretation carelessly. Um, there was a lot of talk in the first couple of weeks of the, of the pandemic that, like, we don't need to be worried about coronavirus. Coronavirus has killed fewer people than the flu has. This is a true statement at that point in time. I'm not sure if it's still true today. At the time, 24,000 people had died due to normal influenza, and, like, maybe only a 1,000 or so had died of coronavirus. But it didn't change the fact that that data was being presented in a misleading light that information was being skewed. It was being presented as though, therefore, coronavirus is not a big deal, even though coronavirus's death rates are much higher than the the flu. And if as many people catch coronavirus as have caught the flu, many, many more people are going to be dead. Um, This is not bad information, but it is bias. It is misleading. It is incorrectly reported. Um, There's a difference between that and saying, for example, that like there are more deaths than coronavirus than due to flu, even though I haven't looked up my data right now. Um, That's bad data. Like that is a actual out and out lie. Um, But you've got to be wary for both. Um, You've got to figure out why people are saying what they're saying. And that means checking sources, looking at data, looking at like experience um, and not just trusting sort of incoherently chained together bits of information. Um, Question your sources. Interrogate the people who are giving you information. As much as I want to present the pragmatic theory of truth to you as like this really important philosophical idea, I do not want you to run away with it and say, therefore I can believe whatever the hell I want to believe, because there is no truth. I just believe whatever feels comfortable at any given time. Now the warning here, is that we are inclined to believe whatever makes us happiest. We are inclined to believe whatever makes us safest. We are inclined to believe whatever causes us to doubt ourselves as little as possible. And that means we are inclined to believe a lot of bullshit. We are inclined to believe whatever confirms our opinion. And the best way to fight that is to start reading stuff that you disagree with. Start interrogating sources that don't line up with your own convictions. And I'm not saying, like, go become a Breitbart reader. I'm saying go find periodicals that challenge you. Go find voices that disagree with you. That is the best way to make your knowledge more robust. And that is the most pragmatic way to go about finding knowledge. Um, Find the stuff that bores you. Honestly, there is a lot of heinous shit hidden in boring information um most of the truth that is out there is either really disagreeable or really boring and as a result it's ignored. Um, if you want to talk about like dangerous truths, um, it's not the conspiracy theories that are sexy and like implicate you know rich high uh, rich high powered figures you know doing dis- disreputable immoral things it's about, little fiddly loopholes in legislation letting corporations get away with taxation uh, dodges or, um, you know, little tiny gaps in legalistic uh, writing that causes whole groups of people to lose benefits or to not have, um, or not have protections from the state. Like, that's where really sick, ugly stuff goes down. And notice, you're pragmatically, you will pragmatically benefit from learning this stuff, but you are also very disinclined to go do it. Um, So, do what makes you uncomfortable, is kind of what I'm suggesting here. Don't just rely on the fact that, like, truth is bullshit, and you can just, you know, believe whatever you want to believe. Um, Go do the work. Go work hard at finding out what you believe. Go work hard at finding out what other people believe. Work hard at trying to understand how to bridge that gap. If somebody disagrees with you, if you have a bad reaction to something that you're reading, don't get mad. Find out what it is that causes this person to believe that. Like, question them if necessary. Like, that's honestly the best thing you can do with a lot of people online. Like, if somebody is present posting something that you just like have a revulsion about if you are just mad looking at it set up a private message with that person, like engage them outside of the public sphere and ask them questions. If they're honestly acting in good faith, they will answer your questions and then you can find out what, it, why it is they believe what they believe and what it is about it specifically that makes you uncomfortable and that makes you want to dig deeper. And then challenge them about it. If they're not willing to listen to you, but you expect you to listen to them, then you're also in a bad situation and you don't have the obligation of you know, actually believing what they believe. You don't have the obligation of needing to accept what they have to say as truth. Um, It's tricky. I don't pretend like it isn't. But don't lean on simple axioms. Uh, Do not default to simple solutions and do not get lazy. Um, Pragmatism, just like skepticism, just like all of philosophy, tends to be hard work. It tends to involve a lot of research. It tends to involve a lot of questions. It tends to involve a lot of being uncomfortable and a lot of doubting yourself. Um, So go to it. Have fun.